Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, today's, I got a little special episode. Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to recap some of our favorite moments from 2020 from various episodes and uh, put together a little compilation uh, so that you can enjoy some of those select moments and then go back and listen to the entirety of the episode if you like at a later point. But first up... I want to listen to episode 13. So this is a clip from uh, that episode where we discuss aging wild game. And it's uh, Corey, myself, Dustin, and uh, Ara Zada discussing. And Ara is telling us in detail kind of why and how he ages game. Field care and is going to be your next biggest factor and then storage of of the meat aging aging yeah. i think is a huge part of it and that's that's one thing that nobody gets I, I not nobody a lot of people get wrong and and most meat that you get from a, a grocery store people don't know it's it's wet aged so yep. it's had its time to relax and and it, it's past its green stage is what we call it um and most people don't ever let it rest enough to where it's actually going to, you know, start breaking itself down to where the meat's going to taste better. It, it intensifies. You don't need a dry ager to do it. Like I let my venison, when I, when I kill a deer, I, I let it sit a minimum seven to 10 days before I start breaking it down even more. So I'll cut it into pieces, let it rest. 
So like the muscle has enough time to kind of slightly break down and you don't actually lose a lot of meat in that, in that respect, like seven to 10 days, isn't that much time, but if you cut open, you know, immediately, and then you start grilling it, you're going to get this weird texture, this weird kind of funky taste. And I think a lot of people skip that one step as well. So, so people may I ask just real quick. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think we probably have the same question. So but where go. would you where would you age this meat if if you didn't know you're just getting into it? You go out, you hunt a deer, you get one, and you say, you know what? I want to I want to age it seven to ten days. Do you have your a separate freezer just for that, or fridge, or what do you? So do? so I have I I have a garage fridge, and what I usually do is I'll just empty it out, and then I'll hang it. If I can hang it, if I can't hang it, I'll put it on, uh, you know, a sheet tray with, with some ra- uh, like a rack on it, just so it has circulation all the way around it. So it's not laying down and you don't want it to kind of pull up. You just want it to kind of rest ideal situation. It would be temperature controlled and you have some sort of moving air, but it's, it's, I'm not saying that's not necessary. You can just do it in any fridge. The fridges that you don't necessarily want to do it on are the most modern, modern day fridges because they have these cooling systems inside of them that, that tend to put like this frost chill on it. So it, it doesn't break it down the same way. Like an so older fridge works better for this. Average person buy like a hundred dollar fridge on Craigslist, Facebook marketplace. Yeah. yeah. Clear out all the shelves and you can hang meat yep. or you can put them on the racks as long as the air can circulate. Exactly. So you, if you leave it out there before even touching it, before you even touch it, what I, I usually do is I put them in um, the bags, the game bags, and I'll leave them in the game bags just sitting there. And if you don't want it to pool up with blood, you don't want it to you don't want it to get wet, you actually want the outside to be dry. So you dry it, you let it sit there, you let it hang seven to ten days. After that, I break it down into smaller pieces. If you're going to leave it in a vacuum sealed pack, if you leave it if you vacuum seal it and you put it in the fridge, you maybe triple the amount of time you need. If you freeze it, you quadruple the amount of time you need. So if you if you cut up, let's say you cut up a a, a, um, a deer loin, and then you vacuum seal it and you throw it in the freezer, it would take at least five months if you did it immediately to get to where it needs to be. Hmm. But if you and let, so, yeah, go on. So what? Um, I guess. I sort of understand it, but just to spell it out, the the differences, if you could just compare the differences, say I took mine out, I didn't age it at all, I put it in the freezer, and then two months later I pulled steaks out, thawed it, threw them on the grill, versus I followed the process, I dry-aged it, or aged it in the, the refrigerator hanging, and then two months later I did side-by-side comparison, like, what what do you think you would see as a result? So so right off the bat, um, what happens, you're going to get a much more tender piece no matter what it is. If you had apples to apples, your piece that was aged is going to be, it's going to seem like it's more tender. Uh, the flavor, what's going to do is going to start, when you age meat, what it's doing is it's drying out towards the outside and it's basically releasing its water so it's, it's compacting the flavor inside of that one. If you take one steak and you dry aged it, it's going to condense that flavor, make it a more tender cut of meat, and make it a more enjoyable meal. If you did it the other way, like let's say you just vacuum packed it and then you, you ate it right away, 
it's not it's not that it's going to be bad. It's just going to be that much better if you at least let it rest seven to ten days. What then the the science behind it is when when you kill something, it goes through its rigor mortis stage. And that rigor mortis stage, everybody knows that if you've killed a big animal, it's it's floppy, and then all of a sudden it seizes up. All the muscles stiffen up, and it has mm-hmm. to get past that. And it's not when it gets past that, it's not just when you're field dressing it and starts the muscles start to get loose. It goes down to like the molecular level where the muscles slowly, slowly start releasing their tension, and then it becomes an edible piece of meat. So when I shoot hog, one of the biggest things I do because I want to eat that fresh hog, and I shoot my boars, I brine them to kind of help break it down. But you're saying dry aging it would also kind of uh, get rid of the need to have to brine it. So, yeah. Def- well, brining with, with pork is a thing that will impede moisture inside of it. So that helps with moisture content and keeping it juicy. Okay. So that, mm-hmm. doesn't, that doesn't necessarily help with the meat itself breaking down. Pork has a less amount of, there's less time you need to do it with pork than you would do with any kind of red meat. So it's keeping it juicier, uh, but it still might still be tough. Exactly. Okay, exactly. Okay. So you could have a juicy, you, I know you've done, you've had it before. We've all done it. You've had like, it's juicy, but it's still kind of tough. Yeah, it tastes yes, good, absolutely. but it's hard Especially to bite ribs. into. Yeah. Exactly. So this will help with that. Pork, you don't need to do it as much. I usually leave my pork in the fridge for like three, three to six days, okay. somewhere around that. Um, and it also depends on the the, por- the part of it. Uh, when I kill a hog, the first thing I eat is a heart. Uh, that's like my my gift to myself. Yeah, it's a treat. <laughs> Hunter's treat. Yeah, hearts and yeah. livers, man, that's the best. Honestly, it's it's and then it's like the and prize then, in the cereal pack. It, it's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. So I, that that's like what I what I we we bring back to camp. We all get our hearts. We saute up the carts, and then like you you leave the rest for home. It's just so it, go on. Um, I, I have a question for Corey. Corey, um, I know that in the Northeast, it's a big um, custom, I guess. I guess you could call it a custom to uh, hang deer outside in the winter. Yeah. I, yeah, that's awesome. Is that is that uh, it's still a pretty common practice? Yeah, I'd say I don't do it a whole lot because um, I get a lot of deer in archery season, and it gets too warm to to do that. And like like our, uh, I have a garage fridge yeah. that uh, that I use to help age. Um, and then uh, late season, I've I've let them hang in my shed, but then they freeze solid, so it's it's tough to work with them when they're a. a, a a solid block of meat. Yeah. Um, it gets cold. Yeah. <laughs> when it's frozen salt, it's not aging, right? No, it, it just slows it down. So I guess our, our biggest takeaway, the piece of advice for this process is coming in and probably like your average hunter, if you're going to break it down in the field, probably breaking it down into quarters. Exactly. Uh, breaking Hunter- down the back strap or the loin and just, game bag them separately and yes. then a- allowing them to either hang or sit on a rack or a tray and just have them just age for, you know, a week or so. Yeah. What I would do is the largest pieces you can keep in your fridge. If you could do the whole thing, I would do the whole thing. 
If you got to break it into quarters, do it into quarters. If you got to break it into smaller pieces, separating just the largest pieces that you can keep, keep those together. Because the, the smaller they are, the more they're going to dry out. So if you do a proper dry aging, let's say for beef, where they do 25 days, 28 days, 100 day dry aging of beef, there's this kind of pellicle that grows on the outside, which is just mm-hmm. this good um, bacteria, more or less, that kind of attacks it. And they got to trim away all of that. Yeah. But it condenses the flavor. With this, you're not going to get that. It's not going to be that long. But the smaller the piece, the quicker the outside will dry out. And you might need to trim away some if it's a very small piece. So when you dry age, do you add any kind of rubs or anything? Or do you just no. leave it as is? No, no, no. Just you're literally taking it from the field and getting a clean piece of meat and then letting it sit. I'm definitely, um, I have not done this. I've always like pretty much processed it, uh, you know, at the point of like breaking down the animal in the field, putting it into quarters, into the cooler, and then back home as sort of soon as possible. And this, uh, oh, man, this raises a lot of thoughts in my mind now <laughs> as I think about it. <laughs> Next up, we have episode 203, which is uh, Why Take Kids Hunting. And this was Dustin, Colin, myself, and uh, Corey. And uh, a cool takeaway I I, I liked from this moment was kind of going through buying your kid their first gun. And Corey shared a lot with that. So really great, really great episode. Yeah. And, you know, on that note, I guess we'll segue in (laughs) so yesterday i picked up a rossi 20 gauge youth model 20 gauge so it's it's uh the market for buying guns is a little strange right now so i didn't get exactly what i wanted but i think it's a close second once i got it home and got to to uh you know handle it a little bit but it's um gonna try that with my daughter. At first, I was I was thinking about um like a Savage Rascal twenty two because uh, we could try it. They had them in stock at the local gun shop, and it fit her pretty well. But thinking about it, like a uh, a kid just starting out trying to pick off a moving squirrel with a twenty two is. It's a, yeah, it's a challenge. A challenging. Yeah. yeah. And what I don't want to do is, you know, get to a point where, you know, we finally get to see the squirrel and have all that excitement for a split second. And then she misses. And then it's like a total letdown because, you know, because it does, t- it takes some skill to, to pick them off with the 22. So I decided to get the, the shotgun and we're going to use that instead. And, um, uh, it's I, I I plan to make a few little modifications to it to help to help it fit her a little bit better. Um, uh, I, I, how, how old is she now, Corey? She's what's what's her age? She's eight. So okay. Um, oh man, I have a good. good I have to get one for my daughter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my my one of my good friends, his son. Um, started hunting squirrels successfully uh, i think last year and he i think he's nine or ten this year so 
It's about the same age, so I'm keeping my expectations and hopes low just because I don't want to, you know, have a big letdown. But I, I plan to help do a few things to help it fit her a little bit better. Like, I, it's, it's a youth model and it's a synthetic stock, so it's light. So I'm a little concerned about the recoil. So uh, mm-hmm. Allen Company makes a recoil pad um, that uh, I plan to put on there. It's, it's called the Recoil Eraser. And it, it's like, you know, affordable, less than 10 bucks. You can pick it up and it slips right over the end of the stock. Um, and then the- I'll have to look, I'll have to look at that. We got, um, we actually brought in, so my mom came to visit, uh, right when my son was born back in March and, uh, she brought, uh, my old 410. It's a single barrel breakover 410 that I've had since I was a kid. And I think it was hers before. And I'm not sure where she got it before that, but it's, uh, I think it's about the size, uh, for my daughter who's turning eight in September. And, uh, you mentioned that recoil pad and it definitely, it's a good idea. I think it's a wood stock on this one, but I still think it's going to have a, a little bit of kick for her, even though it's the 410. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it, the, this Rossi's a break, break action as well so the i have or my dad has a break action 20 gauge that's on the smaller size that would could potentially fit her but it's it's an old like h and r um and it doesn't have any safety and the the one thing that that i'm you know really focusing on is is the safety aspect and being so young and learning the handling of a firearm i want to make sure everything's in place so I'm avoiding using that one. Uh, this Rossi has a safety, and it's basically a bar that goes in front of the hammer. Uh, so, okay. So there's that. I, I wanted to make sure we we had a, a safe gun. And that's a very important point to to make to new, especially new fathers taking out their their maybe their first child. You know, like. For adults, we look around. Oh, trigger discipline, discipline, discipline. Blah blah. blah. No, it's everyone important. knows keep your finger off, yeah. right? But you're you're identifying. Okay, this gun might not be the best practice gun or, or, or first introduction gun, so I'm going to use this instead. That's a very important point. I mean, I think I was thinking about it. Yeah, the one I have, it has a hammer on it as well. But it's too. I you know I've been. Um, I, I listen to Meteor podcast a lot, and we we talk about it off and on here. And Colin, you probably recall this because I think you probably you and Corey both listen to it probably as much as I do. But um, Steve Vernella a couple episodes ago was talking about with his son and having a breakover shotgun as well, and that being the choice because whenever they're not doing something or like somebody walks up, he's like his instruction to his son is like always like break that thing open, yeah. and it's always like a show of like there's you have no chance for for something to go wrong if the gun itself is is broken open right yeah that's a good practice and i i think that's definitely i was thinking about that listening to the episode and i was like i have the breakover 410 for for zoe and it's probably going to be the it's going to be a method i think i'm going to stick to and just like dustin hammered the trigger discipline safety i mean i don't think there's a safety on the one i have but it's got it has a hammer on it so that's going to be our our go-to for that but i do like where your your head's at Corey. yeah and and you know it's one to kind of put her her mother at ease as well because you know her mom my wife 
her, I mean, her, her brother and her father hunted, but she never did. So it's kind of a little bit new territory. So to help, you know, put her mind at ease, who she's, you know, as a mother, you're all, they're always worrying about their kids. So helps with that. And, and then, uh, like you said, helps, helps with the safety aspect. And, you know, we kind of went over things, you know, when I brought it home last night, okay. You know, the, the, you know, golden rules of firearm handling, no, no, you know, know where your muzzle's pointing, never pointed at something you don't intend to shoot. You know, always treat the gun as if, as if it's loaded. Never put your finger on the trigger until you're ready to shoot. And uh, so, know your target. Target. Oh, target. Yeah, I knew I, I knew I was missing one. <laughs> so your target. We did talk about that one as well. So I knew I was missing. Well, one. That's important because <laughs> you, you gotta you gotta know your kids, right? Like for my daughter, I can do that. I can say these things. Hey, this is important. Do this. Do that. For my son, I'm like, no. First, you're gonna carry a stick. <laughs> you're gonna make sure you're gonna make sure that stick is pointing in the right direction at all times. Once I see he can handle that stick right, I'm gonna give him a Nerf gun, and then we're gonna graduate up. But for my daughter, she pays a little bit more attention. She has that that mindset. So I'm able to I'm able to understand both of my kids have different learning capabilities, and I gotta adjust my safety factors accordingly. I think yeah, that's an important fact too. Is like it's a good good perspective of especially knowing your children and paying attention to the differences and you know i think as as fathers you start to pick out you know granted i have uh, a seven-year-old and a three-month-old or four-month-old now but it's a uh, there's already subtle sub subtle differences in their behavior but i'm sure like dustin mentioned Corey, you're probably the same like you you guys know your kids pretty well and and it's not a bad thing to adjust your teaching methods. I mean, I think any human being, no two human beings are going to learn the same way in the same amount of time and be matched up perfect. So it's, it's natural to, to have to adjust and take different directions for your kids. And I think as fathers and as parents, uh, mothers and, and mentors of younger hunters and even new hunters, uh, you know what they call the adult onset hunter that it's uh it's important just to learn to learn and pay attention to their learning styles so that it's easier to communicate things to them in a manner that they're going to absorb and i think safety is probably one of the biggest 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 foundations uh that we're gonna that you'll hit on yeah so we're we're working on it um but I think to help with the uh, the because like I said it's a composite stock so it's pretty light so I'm gonna put the recoil pad on and then Alan also makes um, uh, a shell holder so I was gonna slip it over the stock put some shells in there to kind of add a little bit of weight to the stock so it absorbs some of that and then they get they make a ton of different slings so I'll get her you know get her a pink camo sling or something to put on there that uh you know she can say yeah that's that's my gun but pennsylvania has a uh mentored youth license that you can you can buy so i think we're going to make a little bit of a, a adventure out of going down to the the uh sporting goods store buying the license buying some shells and kind of make a, a thing out of it so she you know it's something special a little bit of a rite of passage type of thing
It was a great section by Corey, really getting his daughter into uh, hunting, which is great. I've been doing the same with my daughter over the past uh, couple months, and even just today, we got out to do a little bit of squirrel hunting, so excited to follow in the tracks of Corey there. Next up, we have, a, a I think, a, a pretty humorous yet kind of a, a interesting conversation with that we had with uh, Lauren Sarasura. She's a spear spearfisher, spiro angler, spearfisher woman. Um out of Florida here, and, and we talked about uh, in episode 212, this is when lobsters bite back, and this is the specific instance where uh, Lauren got bit by the lobster. So I uh, thought it was a unique moment because I didn't really know that lobsters could bite, so uh, something I wanted to share over again so you guys could, could give it a listen, but enjoy. What's your what's your take on lobster on on the Florida spiny lobster? Oh my god, I love them. I got bit yeah. by one the other week. Actually, you know what? I saw your uh, I think it was your picture and video of where. So how does one get bit by a lobster? Oh god, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> but so I was out spear fishing and I was on a boat that I had never been on before with some people that I I met a few weeks earlier. And when we got off the boat, I remember them saying that they forgot a cooler. So I thought we were all going to like stick together and, you know, just keep putting fish on the stringers. I never expected to be hunting lobster. I, I was really looking for mutton and different snappers. But uh, so I was just swimming around and then I come across the lobster, so I pick it up. I go back to the boat to put it on the boat, but I was like, crap, where do I, where do I put this? So I didn't want to just leave it like out in the open so that it could just die and you know go bad in, in the summer sun. So I decided, you know what? I heard of people putting them in their wetsuit, so I'll just put it in my shirt. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. So I it's put it in my move. shirt. Yeah. I mean, I put it facing away my body and then I tied my shirt with a hair tie. Like, so it would stay there. And I kept swimming and like the spines were like stabbing me, but I was like, I can do this. It's worth it. We were having a dinner that night. So I needed the lobster. And um, so, yeah, so I'm swimming along. Uh, I shoot a yellow jack and then I need to reload my gun, so I move the lobster to the back of my shirt, and then I reload my gun. I shoot another yellow jack, and I feel the lobster like going up my shirt sleeve. And I was like, oh no, this is not good. <laughs> so I reload my gun as fast as I can. I have both of the yellow jacks on my shooting line and just rewrap my gun, load it again, and then I feel like, this bite, and I was like, it's biting me. Like, it was so painful. And so I'm pulling it away from my arm in the sleeve, but the sleeve only moves so far, you know, because it's fabric. And like the fat on my arm isn't like coming out of its mouth. So I was like, I didn't know what to do. So I, I just kind of held on to the lobster as hard as I could and pulled my arm out of the sleeve. 
And then I had the lobster in the sleeve. He was just stuck in there. So I was like, okay, I think he's stuck there. I just got the crap bitten out of me. I'm just going to sling my sleeve over my, my shoulder and just keep hunting. So that's what I did. I just kept, I kept hunting. I, then I shot a mutton. And then a huge storm came. So I swam back to the boat. And then I got relieved of my lobster. <laughs> so let me ask you this. So whenever you put the lobster in the pot that yeah. night, was it like, was it the feeling of redemption? You're like, I got you back. It was just like, <laughs> you, you know, my moment of relief was when I, when I measured it to see if it was legal. So I was like, <laughs> it's better be legal. <laughs> you just bit oh, the crap man. out of me. I had a scar on my arm. Like, I think it's still there. You can kind of see it, but it was bruised like really badly. And I had a little scar that looked like the Wu-Tang logo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, I didn't know you could get bit by anybody. I didn't know anyone could get bit by lobster. So that's, uh, Oh yeah. They bite hard, very hard. That's yeah. Wow. All right. Um, (laughs) man, that sucks. I'm sorry. Isn't that, that's the area where people like, would pinch each other in elementary and middle school to like kind of like bully people is like the back of your arm. That's like the most sensitive part. That's like the worst place to get pinched by any. Yeah. yeah like, like right there. <laughs> yeah. Cause there's like all your, your muscle resides in like the top and then you get like the back. Yeah. 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 That lobster knew what he was doing. He was trying to put the most amount of pain. <laughs> Oh, he that's why, that's why he crawled up there. He's like, I'll show her. Yeah. He crawled up, grabbed my arm with his legs, and just. Oh, gosh. That sounds awful. Oh, it was awful. Corey, what would you do? What would you do, Corey, if you were bit by a lobster? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Bite it back, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Corey's probably I mean, a wild solution for it. <laughs> I was just happy that I had moved it to the back of my shirt because if it bit the front. <laughs> oh. oh, I don't think that would be very fun either. No, definitely not. <laughs> Unless you're into like, you know, that's it. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's people out there. To I'm sure. Own, I guess. <laughs> Someone's going to um, be like, I need to find a lobster. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, what kind of podcast you got going on over there? <laughs> that was a really crazy moment. I, I don't think I could imagine being bit by a lobster. But uh, I, in, in all seriousness, it's a, a funny story and an interesting occurrence. But uh, Lauren's a, an awesome uh, Spiro. She loves spear fishing and, and does a great job. Be sure to go check out her Instagram and and see all the great things she's doing. She actually, uh, in that same episode, we discuss the potential world record woman's or lady's amberjack that she shot uh, that was unmeasured, so it was unconfirmed, but uh, looked to be one of the largest. So great thing to do. So next up, uh, we have a cool conversation, which actually spiraled a lot of uh, future conversations regarding beer and wild games. So this was Dan... Uh, Will and myself chatting about this uh, wild game and beer pairing. 
So that went over to the recently released Meteor article, which uh, I pinned with a buddy. And uh, we, we basically gave you a, a pretty comprehensive guide on pairing beer and wild games. So this is a little clip that led to an episode that led to a couple articles and uh, hopefully some follow-on projects. But we'll see. Enjoy. You know, I, I, it, the thought came to me. Dan and I conversed about it several times with the, I just couldn't get it out of my head. Um, and so the more I thought about it, the more I was like, look, you know, it's something cool. And you know, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not a bougie beer drinker, but I do like good beer. Oh yeah. But I also, also like really cheap beer. Like, you know, I, I drink <laughs> Coors, Coors original yeah. pretty regularly. Paps Blue Ribbon finds its way. That's what we call working beers. Um, yeah. They're functional. They serve a purpose. Yeah, I mean, well, right I mean, now. What's the first thing we grab when we get off the mountain or after we finish butchering, you know, sitting around the campfire? You, you grab a nice beer. It's, yeah. it's part of the culture. Yeah, and I think it's fair. And, you know, I I carry Coors in the cooler uh, tonight. I'm drinking Miller High Life. I mean, it's fine, but it, if I want to enjoy something, I'm going to lean more towards the craft side. And I, I think that's something I've, I've been excited to see explode over the last decade, you oh, know, yeah. I lived in California before in San Diego and it's like one of the hot spots for craft beer in the U S and like you could go, you know, at one Each time block had its own micro. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I think there was over a hundred microbreweries, yep. you know, just before I left and it's pretty crazy. But if you get out there and you plug around on the internet, something you will not find is a good list on what pairs well with wild game. And, uh, I think, part of that may be just the fact that maybe people that enjoy wild game don't always take the time to write down what beers they enjoy with it or yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's one of those barrier to entry things, right? So you can't go to the store and get wild game. So there's a subsection of society that really enjoys wild game and mm-hmm. more times than not inherently, we also like craft beer. Yep. But pairing the two, it's a it's a match made in heaven. I know for me personally, um, kind of w- when we were talking about it and I was thinking about it, it's definitely seasonal for me too, because certain beers come out at certain times of the yeah. year. So when you're hunting, depending on what that season is, if you have a good microbrew near you, or even you know one of the godfathers of it here in Nevada, they have seasonal beers that come out. And if they make a bad one, I don't know because I haven't had one yet. But each one that comes out for me means another another season, another move towards either hunting or a prime time of hunting. So I do oh, yeah. want to, and especially like beers become nostalgic too. Like whenever I go to Wyoming and hunt, there's certain brands of beer that I just you know I have to drink with that mule deer hunt, and it and it just adds to that full experience. Yep. I yep. I'm also I want to point out because. It, I already saw some comments and some, you know, some and all those different things. But this is a general guide. I'm not telling you what to drink. I'm not saying you're drinking the wrong beer. Nope. You know, and I know that, you know, whitetail deer from Central Florida and whitetail deer from Nebraska and whitetail deer from Massachusetts all taste different. Their diets are different. Their environments are different. It's different. So in the end, I'm going to say this. And I'll say it at the end of the show, drink what you like, what tastes good to you. But for me, this is a good starting point for those people who are curious and want to try different types of beer. Remember, always pair wild game and beer responsibly. Always. (laughs) 
And don't drink and drive. No. <laughs> or hunt. Or hunt. Don't drink and hunt. <laughs> Very true. So, um, I just wanted to put that full disclosure out there. Because um, I think it's important. You know, there, there's definitely groups of people out there, and I'm, I'm sure this exists in the world, that um, they may want to try different beers, but they're like, where do I go? And I, I've walked into the beer store or that liquor store or the grocery store with the beer section. You're like, it takes me a good some days, like 10, 15 minutes to figure out what beer I want to get if yep. I want to get something schwanky. So you're just given, you know, the listener or the reader a great jumping off point on, you know, here's a family of beer that works well, you know, to kind of cut that 10 minutes in the beer aisle down to probably about two, you know, yeah. give them a starting off point. Yeah. And I'm, I'm you know, there's different, there's different flavors and subsections and sub specialties within each one of those beers and different breweries yeah. make them different ways. It's like, there's, there's no right or wrong way. And I mean, I, hell, I could recommend a beer type and you're like, well, that didn't work. And yeah. And I think another big part of it too, is people love to know, and it's, it's society's problem, right? Everybody wants to know what's the best, what is the absolute best. So people put a fictitious amount of pressure and, you know, fame upon a beer a lot of times just because it's hard to get. So because something's rare, they think it's automatically good, but there are so many good microbrews out there right now. So many good IPAs. If you're into IPAs, stouts, everybody's doing something with it. It's no longer, you know, just Budweiser or, you know, the three big Miller Coors and Budweiser. There's a, there's a world of flavors out there just like wild game. So definitely mm-hmm. experiment, see what you like. And, you know, and I, that's reflected in the list too, because I didn't choose one. I didn't choose two. Right. I chose three, and I gave a darkness scale because some people like dark beer, some people like light beer, some people don't. But it's like, you know, and in the end too, it, you know, it's it's my opinion uh, based off research that I did and tasting and eating and you know my experience with wild game. So it's like it's not one hundred percent foolproof, but I don't want to don't want to spend too much time defending my list here. I would rather talk about it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's get into it. But one more thing, so consideration. Um, I would say think about how you're preparing the meat. So are you cooking it low and slow? Are you cooking it high and fast? Are you cooking it quick? You know, sometimes just that preparation method uh, is going to create flavors and impart flavors onto it that are going to complement with different types of beers. For instance, a good example, things that go on the grill tend to go with like fresh, hoppy, fruity ales. So yep. IPA, something crisp, all those things, just because it's the the caramelization that's created um, through grilling just goes well with the flavors of those beers. Yeah, they cut through it nicely. Mm-hmm. And just like fresh ingredients and, and fresh meat, if you have a nice brewery near you, a local brewery, drink local IPAs and drink them fresh. There is a whole subculture too that ages stuff, but if you want to get the real flavor of the beer, you want to drink it fresh. Um, I will say this as well as my last consideration point is that don't just think about the, the meat alone. Think about the other dishes or the other ingredients in your dish, because you want to make sure that those pair well with the beer also. Yep. 
Um, and don't choose a beer that will overpower your meal. So something too strong with alcohol, something too heavy of flavor. You don't want to pair a really, really light meat with a really, really dark, heavy beer because you'll just you'll lose it i mean you can eat it and you can enjoy and all that but if you take a bite of food and you take a sip of beer you're just going to taste the beer and you're not going to taste drowned it out yeah hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It was a great little teaser for the beer pairing article. Uh, definitely go listen to that episode. That's episode 209. And then head over to Meat Eater, check out uh, my article there. And we also have the article on Harvesting Nature as well, uh, which is is uh, does offer some different varieties, uh, both two different style of articles. But great podcast episode. Check that one out. And then uh, next up, so we, we talked uh, about uh, Corey's deer hunt in uh, episode 221 where he uh, – harvested his first archery buck since like high school so that's a cool uh, moment in history of the harvesting nature world that you can check out so this next episode uh that's off episode 221 where we go into some other great stuff but Corey definitely uh tells us a little bit about his deer hunt with my bow and this uh a couple weekends ago or uh, Friday the thirteenth, Friday the thirteenth. So lucky, lucky Friday the thirteenth. Well, it was good luck for you, but not for the buck. <laughs> no, right, right. One of my uh, first bucks since I was in high school with a bow. I've gotten some with gun since then, but I've been on a pretty uh, nasty drought as far as archery bucks go. I was finally able to end it, thankfully. But my uh, my good so friend is- Jason. What does a, a nasty drought look like? How long? 2003. Holy smokes. 17 and years? with For an archery buck, yeah. 17 yeah, years. for an archery buck. Yeah, so it was a nasty drought. Holy smokes. It was pretty nasty. Yeah. I went, what, like four or five years in a row getting a buck with the bow and then a long, long time without it. Um my friend JC was up. We were planning to hunt all weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, because it was the first uh, Sunday allowed for hunting in Pennsylvania in modern times. So we were planning on you know spending the whole weekend out in the woods. And uh, Friday morning, our first morning of hunting, I got out. You know, I'm all ready for a full day sit. Got all my snacks and my gear and water and all that stuff that you take into the woods and I, I get up into the stand and uh, I'm getting set and it's getting light out. It's past, it's past legal, legal shooting hours. It's, I, I can see to shoot, but I'm still kind of getting situated. And as I'm getting situated, I see a tree shaking. I'm like that, that doesn't look like a squirrel. And it, it was a buck. And I, I don't know if he was 
making a rub or freshening up a scrape or something, but he was he was right there. And he had to been he, he couldn't have been very far away when I walked in. I just I must have been quiet enough to where I didn't disturb him. But uh, he walked after after messing with that tree, he walked right in less than twenty yards and I uh took the shot and saw him go down and got up to him and I think he's one of my best bucks. He's he only had seven points, but uh, they're super tall times and um, real long brow times. I think like a 17-inch spread or something like that. So I'm definitely happy with them. That's pretty good. And, and that all happened by like 7 o'clock on Friday morning. So, so within the first 15, 20 minutes of the first day of hunting I for the weekend, I, I got them. So... Uh, I constantly, you know, I helped JC out a little bit. I did some drives for him then, you know, over the next day. And then the Sunday rolls around and, um, it was like 40 mile an hour, 50 mile an hour gusts of wind. It was just a driving rain. So we did not hunt on Sunday. So wait, you're telling me that the first hunt in Pennsylvania's recorded history on a Sunday, you didn't hunt. No, well, I I, I had my buck. I had my buck, and it was <laughs> it was it was nasty out there. It was nasty. Oh man, I guess you could say I'm a fair weather hunter. Ben, that's a news article right there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's all right, man. And that was really great of Corey to share his archery buck story with us. And now we go over to episode 205 where we chat with uh, a couple of ladies from the Hunt to Eat team or community. And uh, Gabby is their community manager and Liz is one of their brand ambassadors. And we talk about uh, a variety of things in this episode, but we end up... One of my favorite points is the tips for hunting mentors and mentees. So this is really great if you're looking to get into hunting or if you're looking to take the next step and uh, start working with a mentor. These tips will really help you out. I think, yeah, my first gut reaction is to um, tell them to be ready for a long-term relationship because mentoring someone in hunting is not something you can do in a day. You can't do it in one hunting outing. Like it's going to take probably years to learn everything hunting. Um, yeah. So being ready to like, you know, answer those phone calls from your hunting mentee freaking out in the field. (laughs) So like getting those text messages being like, Hey, I drew this tag in Montana and I've never been there before. Like, what should I do? How should I scout? Just, you know, being ready at all times for this person that you've decided to dedicate a bunch of time to, to reach out to you for help, um, and having the patience and the time to, you know, handle it, um, with grace, I think is really essential. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And to kind of add on to that too, in hindsight, um, it was probably more difficult for me to be mentored by a significant other because I am a very bullheaded person and was frankly probably (laughs) not a very good mentee. And so something that I regret about my learning process is I didn't take the time to reach out to other hunters to try to learn from them because everyone has a different knowledge base, a different style. So I think if you personally would like to mentor someone, 
maybe reach out to other friends you know are kind of like-minded or would be willing to take them out for a hunt. Like if you're not much into Upland, but you know a guy who's got three setters, maybe kick him in that direction just to expose them to all the different techniques and mindsets and kind of niche interests um, that other hunters besides yourself might have. I think that's a great point because I'm the same way and I have definitely butted heads with my partner in the field more times than I can count. Um, And like, luckily there's social media and stuff. And so he's told me like people I can follow and learn from and YouTube channels that have good tutorials and like all that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. But I also, you know, was trying to get into the hunting community and had already studied wildlife ecology. And so I kind of had an in and knew people that hunted already. And so without even thinking, I would just, you know, text them and ask them random questions. Um, and so, yeah, it, I guess it was just inherently built into my experience given, um, like the people I was talking to and the community that I was a part of. So thankful for that element, but yeah, Liz, I agree. That's great advice is don't just listen to one person, definitely, um, broaden your scope a little bit and see what other resources are out there. Cause like you said, everyone has a different knowledge base. Yeah, it's definitely a good uh, couple's relationship building exercise, but it can be (laughs) trying for both parties and slightly exhausting when you're out in the field for a few (laughs) days. (laughs) I I was just thinking, I don't know that I could. So a little backstory. So my my wife is uh, she is a pescatarian so she eats primarily just fish and is people have listened to podcasts I, I i talk about it a lot and i talk about sort of my and her relation our food relationship and um so when i first met her she was completely vegetarian and i was working in new orleans as a chef probably arguably one of the best seafood cities in the in the world i'll say and uh it was there she started eating uh, seafood and sort of it translated over. And then once we moved, I graduated college, we moved to the West coast. I was like, Hey, I'm going to get back into hunting. And she's like, what? And I was like, I'm going to get back into hunting. She's like, what do you mean? Get back into hunting. He's like, you, you never did that in college. I was like, well, it was like, it was hard. Um, you know, being a college kid in a, in a city, um, but, you know, it's something I always try to do. And, like, we'd go back home in the fall and all that. And uh, she's like, well, okay. Um, so as time has progressed, she's she's become more accepting of, uh, of the hunting lifestyle, I guess. And now we look at almost 10 years down the road since the, the foundation of Harvesting Nature. And we're definitely, like, neck deep in it. But I don't know that she would ever – she's gone out with me. Like, we'll go camping. And I'm like – you know, take the shotgun and go shoot jackrabbits or something, but it's just, there's still a a part where she's just not interested. So I I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I think we're both comfortable in it being sort of a separate space. And I don't know that I'd want to try to invite her into that space because of the potential implications that may come from it, I guess, down the road. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, hunting is not necessarily going to be for everyone, but it's still nice to build those bridges with folks who might at least accept, like, I'm not going to do this, but I understand the role that it plays, like Gabby's exposure through school to hunting, of understanding its role and its importance for the North American conservation model and why it works. So even if she's not pulling the trigger, it's still kind of nice to have a ally. And I will, 
I will say she's she's a huge supporter and active participant in in fishing outings. So nice. Um, uh, she's it's definitely and it's funny because in Key West in the in the current COVID environment, there's been a lot of downtime. So taking up spear fishing and other things and it's been like one of those things like hey you know what i need to go up to the mainland and go do some scouting for deer season and she's like eh, i don't know and i'm like well or i can go out this morning you know for four or five hours with with some of the guys on the boat and do some spear fishing she's like all right that sounds good <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> i think that's that uh the it's the food talking once you bite into your first uh you know mahi filet or venison steak whichever way it rolls you're like oh yeah like i can see i can get behind this <laughs> yeah. yeah i think a big part of it too is the timing like i don't like i think that you know hunting isn't all of us just because i mean we evolved to be hunters and to eat meat and so like from a dna perspective to me it makes sense um but that being said like you can't force this on someone like it's way too heavy of an activity to try and like convince someone to do um i definitely think you have to be like mentally and physically ready to take it on. Um, and whether that's, you know, you started out as a vegan and you transitioned into a hunter or you started out as a wildlife ecologist and wanted to participate in some more conservation stuff. Um, or, you know, you just try venison one day and you're like, this is delicious and I want to eat some more of this. Um, I think everyone is just in a different place in, you know, their own life and their own journey and being able to acknowledge the moment when like you're ready to be a hunter versus not ready um, is not not something you can force. Um, so, you know, maybe 10 years from now, she will be a hunter because it's not like hunting's going anywhere. Um, it sounds like she'll always have that opportunity to jump in if she wants mm -hmm. to. And some great tips that uh, Gabby and Liz shared and uh, some great perspective on, on getting into hunting and, and being a mentor. Next up, we've got a, a segment from our Adventures for Food episode and this is actually a whole segment because you'll know those are actually small and this is a episode that's titled face off with a cougar we did that probably three or four adventure for food episodes back and that's uh where randy king tells us the story of meeting face to face with a cougar the pursuit of food has taken us into the wilderness across rivers and atop mountains these journeys have connected us to the wild. It's that connection that allows us to experience the wild places this world has to offer for wild game and adventure. This is my adventure for food. On May 12, 2018, I was attacked by a mountain lion in the Sawtooth Mountains of Central Idaho. Clearly, I survived. But let's back up for a second. Me and my buddies, each year we go on this backcountry bear hunt. A group of dudes and I venture into the backwoods with our backpacks full of expensive gear. We try to live like homeless people for a couple days, but we have guns. I have shot a grand total of one bear this way, but hope is a powerful thing. So in 2018, my entire party bailed on me. I had one, one had to go to work. The other's son was graduating high school and said he had to attend. The other one was just a flake. So yet again, I was off to go hunting by myself. This wouldn't normally be a problem since I hunt alone all the time. I decided to go hunt the Sawtooth Wilderness Area, a road-free mountain area in central Idaho that is remote as it is rugged. The valley floor is some 2,500 feet below its peaks. Snow caps them sometimes, snow caps those mountains sometimes like year-round. 
doing this hunt in May would mean swollen creek crossings on wet logs where I wanted to hunt, had no trails. My plan to camp was under a tarp. Believe it or not, all of this, it sounded wonderful. So I began hiking, noticed a bunch of little rain clouds on the horizon and I didn't really know or, or think too much of it. I had packed the right rain gear, everything was gonna be fine, right? I wasn't too thrilled, but then came the downpour. I'd hiked about four and a half miles into this wilderness at this point, and I was a confluence of what's called Goat Creek and South Fork of the Payette River. I decided to stop there because frankly, I didn't want to go across Goat Creek. It had swollen too much. I was tired and I was wet, but there was still daylight. So I grabbed my uh, stuff and I decided to go for a little bit of a hunt. Climbed a hill and found a log to sit on right below the river bottom. And I began to use this uh, cheap cow elk call that I have for uh, a predator call because it makes a better predator call than it does a cow elk call. So bears often come in, if, you do, if you're not aware, like coyote calling or any other kind of predator call. If you scream on something and you're just obnoxious and annoying with a predator call, you can catch the attention of a bear. They're, they're an opportunist. They hunt. They're, they're definitely omnivores. But if you're, if you're screaming like a, like a dying deer, they'll, they'll come in and see it. So it can be highly effective uh, in the backcountry. I don't really recommend it like in grizzly country, but you know, where I know it's just black bears, I'm usually gonna be the top predator, all is good. So I set a timer on my phone, set my phone on my lap, it was 20 minutes. My goal was to see how much call I could do in that time. They have a real short attention span, so I just I just kept screaming and screaming and screaming. I actually pack a pair of earplugs when I know I'm gonna do this and throw them in. So after about 15 minutes, I decided I needed to change kind of my views. There was a big tree up in front of me. And when I when I what I said is I, I moved one cheek and decided to, to, to shuffle, I, I looked to my right and about six feet behind me was a mountain lion. I could have hit it with one of my trekking poles. Uh, and so the thing about it is with those damn earplugs in, and I don't know if I'd have heard it anyway, but I didn't hear it coming. Not a sound. This thing all it did when it saw me was just turn and start walking off. It didn't run. It didn't even act slightly shocked. Um, so obviously at this point, I'm a little freaked out. Luckily, it had been raining a little bit. I had dialed my scope back down to three. Um, and so I kind of stand up and I'm looking at it, right? And now to be clear, I've seen exactly two mountain lions before in my life. Both were hundreds of yards away and fleeing the exact other direction. But this one, what this one did at six feet away from me, it went around a deadfall tree and it turned and looked at me. And so at this point, I've got my gun pulled up and I start screaming, hey, hey cat, hey cat, hey cat, go, go, run, run, run. And this cat does what cats do when they're about to charge, lowered its head. And I was like, ah, shit in the back of my head, right? Picked one paw up, right? Then shunk its body all the way down and then stuck its butt in the air and began to charge. Uh, so at that moment, it was really pretty clear what I had to do. Uh, I, had, I had managed to pull my gun up and I shot the cat. I was aiming in between his eyes and I shot it square in the neck. Um, it looked like I was trying to shoot a house cat. It seriously looked like a cat that was about to pounce on a toy. That is what this creature looked like to me. Um, it was whipping, its tail was whipping from side to side. I shot, it fell. Um, and it's sad at this point because what I'd like to tell you is that I had a tag that I could then fill or I could then punch. Um, I'd like to tell you that I could, I took this meat home and I ate it, 
But unfortunately, I was after something entirely different in May. Cat season's not open in May. Um, but I wasn't going to get eaten by a cat today or on that day. That, that, that was never going to be in the cards. So what ended up having to happen, and uh, I can show anybody this if they ever, ever want to get to it because I keep it on my phone. The next thing I did was I got my phone out. And I showed them where I, I videoed for Fish and Game because season was closed. I videoed where I was sitting, where the cat was standing, where the cat tracks went, what tree it circled back around on, uh, where the cat had pounced from, where I had shot it. Um, the cat in the video, by the way, when I turned to it, is literally still twitching, um, which makes you kind of feel bad. But at the same time, I don't need to lose my hunting license or a little bit of self-defense. So now, uh, after I video it, I managed to sit back down and there's a dead cat. That's when I start shaking because that's when it really hits me just what happened. I've been screaming on a predator call in the middle of the sawtooth wilderness and the trail is point, right? Uh, I now have blood in the air. Mind you, it's after a shot, so it might have scared a couple of things. The only thing that I can really think to do is gut this thing, right? Because if I abandon it, I don't want to give given a ticket for meat abandonment and hide abandonment. So now I have to gut an animal, put more blood into the air, sleep somewhere near a whole bunch of downed meat after I've been screaming on a predator to call. So the four hours of sleep that I did that get that night were uh, rugged, let's call it. And it was definitely an adventure uh, in food. So eventually I came back down the mountain. I got, managed to get the cougar out in one trip. Um, came back down the mountain and uh, there is a fish and game check station on the way out. No, actually, it's not a fishing game. It's a, um, oh, what is it? A forest ranger check station. So my four-day backcountry adventure turned into about 13 hours in the wilderness. Uh, I end up checking myself in and have to go turn myself in and the cougar in to the fishing game when I get back to my um, hometown. So it was really one of those times in life where you're just kind of glad that you keep your head um, ready to go, that you know what to do, that you're prepared. Um, a lot of people would freeze, in my opinion, if, if a cat was going to charge them. But that's something that, to me, uh, I will obviously never forget it. Uh, and, and it really makes me self-aware to know that when I'm doing things like pretending like I'm a critter that is good to eat, I have to keep myself a little bit more aware in those situations. Because if that cat had decided that it wanted to eat me at any point before um, I noticed it, it could have. And that would have been a much, much different story. I'm pretty sure I would have walked away. But that same week in May is when those two people in Seattle were um, attacked. And one of those didn't actually get away. Those, one of those bikers didn't get away. So it was uh, definitely a telling experience. And, you know, my wife, uh, about a day later, because I had taken a couple of days of vacation, was asking me, are you going to go back out and go bear hunting? I'm like, no, I think I'm good for this year. I think uh, the next thing I want to shoot needs to eat some grass. And so that was the end of my bear hunting that year. Um, but yeah, man, that was a, a heck of an adventure. I wish I had food I could tell you I cooked out of it. But but yeah, keep your head on a swivel. Cougars are out there and they do charge if you pretend like you're a dying deer for long enough. What a crazy adventure Randy had uh, with that cougar. Next up we have from episode 204, we chat with uh, the infamous Hank Shaw. And uh, what I, 
there was a lot of information we took away from this episode, but I think what stood out to me most is is I asked Hank what his recommended skills were, kitchen skills, for the Wild Game Cook. And he gave us a nice little uh, rundown, which I think you'll enjoy. Skills for either beginner wild game cooks or experienced wild game cooks that if they're looking to get a little more proficient that um that that they should get involved in i think the vast majority of your time if you're going to spend it well is to just be good at basic techniques and there's there's no there's no special thing that you need to know as a wild game cook you just need to be a good cook so you need to be able to cook a piece of meat to temperature and with game, it's significantly more difficult than it is with steak or pork because of the lack of fat. So just as skinny people get colder more quickly than fat people do, fat is an insulator when you're cooking. So the presence of it, it, it makes it, the, even if you the temperature's a little too, if it's over, you know? So if you ate Wagyu beef medium well, it's still going to be amazing. You eat a piece of venison backstrap medium well, it's not going to be amazing. Because it lacks that internal fat. There's no, there's almost no marbling. And I say almost because I've seen it twice in all my years of hunting and cooking and butchering. I've only seen marbling in wild game twice. Um, it's exceedingly rare. And so, cooking, be able to, being able to cook lean meat to perfection, single, single most important thing you can learn. Um, learn how to cook fish which is to say not much. And you know, this is basically a, an overall maxim that you should all live by, everybody who's listening to this. You can always cook it more. Right? Mm -hmm. You can't cook it less. Mm -mm. So if you're going to make a mistake, undercook something. And you will, first of all, you'll find that it tastes better, typically depending on how you normally cook. But but if, case in point, if you cook a pheasant breast or a quail breast to an internal temperature of 150 degrees Fahrenheit, that's medium well. It's phenomenal. It's still cooked through. It's got a blush of pink right in the center of it, but it's perfect. You could even go like a degree or two below that, but I wouldn't go too much below. Otherwise, you get kind of like weirdness inside. It's still safe to eat. Like it's perfectly safe to eat medium rare quail. Perfectly safe. Nobody gets sick from from undercooked wild game birds. They don't. There's no records of it, and I've read them all. So that's always the thing that you have to remember. S same thing with like a, a, when you're grilling anything. Your tendency is to get that good grill mark. And if you get the good grill mark, sometimes you have overcooked the thing. So one way, if you're really obsessed with good grill marks... Chill your meats, chill your fish. It should come right out of the fridge and onto the grill if you want that good grill mark. Because guess what? We're not really typically dealing with things that are very thick. So if you're talking about a bird, you're talking about a piece of fish, you're talking about flank steak, you're talking about skirt steak, all of these things are way better right out of the fridge because it gives you that, that chill buys you time to get the good grill mark without overcooking the interior of the meat. Now, a thick ribeye or a big pork chop is an entirely different story, but but that's but I digress. So that's important. Learn how to make stock. We 
shoot and catch so many different things that can be made into broths and stocks that are amazing that if you don't know how to do that, you're missing out. Yeah. And f- short version, I'm talking about stock, not talking about bone broth. They're two very different things. Bone broth includes some sort of calcium. Uh, the, people want to extract calcium out of it, so typically they add acidity to it, which is never in a stock. A stock or a broth is a basic building block of something else. A bone broth is this concoction where people think they get more nutrition out of it, and it's entirely debatable whether they do or not. I, for the one, deeply dislike cloudy boils for two days broths. Mm-hmm. It's just not my thing. So if you like it, go for it. Learn how to do it. I prefer clear stocks and broths. So learn how to do that. That's another thing. Learn how to build a stew. You know, very, very few stews are, hmm, I've got a bunch of things. I'm going to throw them in a pot and pour water over it and walk away. I mean, you can. I mean, if you're if you're if you're busy, if you're just trying to survive, you can do that. But that's not a good stew. That's an okay stew. Not everything in that pot needs the same amount of time to cook. In some cases, the meat requires two hours longer than anything else. And so learn those layers, you know, the, the, when to put the green thing in, when to put the starch in, when to put beans in, when to put the meat in, know why you're going to brown something or not brown something. It it, it creates very different effects, very different effects between uh, anything that is cooked with browning or without browning. You know, for example, Asian broths are never browned. They're never roasted because they, they value a clear broth. It's a cleaner flavor. Um, so that's one thing. Learn how to fry. For God's sake, man, learn how to fry. Like everyone's like, like everyone likes to poop on frying. And like, I'm sorry, if you have something that is perfectly fried, it is not greasy. No. You know, don't be afraid of 350 degree oil. Like everybody freaks out. They're like, yeah, well, I started frying at 310 because I was afraid of 350. I'm like, I know it's crazy. I'm like, well, duh. Like <laughs> you still had 40 degrees to go. And then you forgot that when you drop something in, it drops the temperature because the item you put into it displaces. Oh God. Just drives me batty. <laughs> like, like, a, like the first batch was good. The second one, like, well, yeah, because you didn't let the oil heat back up to 350 in between batches. So like learn how to fry because really, I mean, let's face it. If you think you don't like fried food, you're either deeply, deeply, deeply self-deluded or you've just never had really good fried food, which is also possible because bad fried food is exceptionally bad. Yes. So that's an that's another bedrock skill. Uh, learn how to cut meat. You know, there's a reason why certain things are tender and certain things have a good chew to them. And, 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 you know, and I'm not talking just about butchering and that's important. I mean, that's another thing. Like you should just, you should learn how to butcher your own animals that you bring home, whether it's filleting a fish or, or butchering a deer or a rabbit or a bird. It's, it's kind of important because if you care about the food that you serve, you're really going to trust that to a, you know, a processor who does 4,800 deer in a, in a season. And that's not really an exaggeration in some parts of the, of the country. Like mm-hmm. there are processors who are running like a hundred deer a day through during season. They don't care the same way that you care. And now that said for every story about that, there's going to be somebody be like, well, my butcher's amazing. Great. Wonderful. Work with that butcher. Cause you have a special one and there's not many like them. 
it, the other thing is people butcher idiosyncratically. Go to a Mexican restaurant, you know, go to a Mexican carniceria. Look at how their cut, what their cuts of meat look like. Entirely different. Well, because they butcher the way they cook. The French do that. Everybody does this. Like you butcher the way you cook. And so if you need a packet of X for Y dish, because you know in your head when you shot that deer, you're going to make a whole bunch of X. Well, you're going to cut the deer that way. And you can't really tell unless, unless by some miracle of chance, you have a Mexican butcher who will take a deer in his place, which might happen somewhere, maybe in South Texas. But, but like, there's very few places like that. So, you know, learn how to break apart an animal. That's, that's important. Um, what's another really good one. One other just ironclad rule of, of wild game cooking that, that everybody, everybody who's a beginner screws up. They cook the tender parts too much and the tough parts too little. You know, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that a turkey drumstick was inedible, I could eat at the French laundry every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> like, eh, it's too tough. We'll keep cooking it, you knob. I mean, and, like, it's going to get soft. It's going to get tender. I mean, the tendons won't, but the meat will fall off them. I converted and, several of my friends with your uh, turkey carnita recipe. They, they keep the drumsticks mm -hmm. and thighs now. Yeah, I mean, and that's uh, you. You bring up a great point because the, how do you do that? You but you you have the forethought. And this goes back to the cutting your own meat. You have the forethought to have a packet of drumsticks and a packet of thighs, because the thighs are in, incredibly versatile, but the drumsticks are less versatile. They're both good in their own way, but like if I kill four or five turkeys a year, which is on the high end, um, you better believe there's going to be a packet of just drumsticks and a packet of just thighs because they're just, they use them in different ways. Now, can you make carnitas out of thighs? Absolutely. It's great. But there are other ways to cook a thigh that are, that you can't do with a drumstick and that, that the knowledge of being able to separate those two is important. Shanks is another one. Like, mm -hmm. like I'm pretty sure I was the first guy to, to start, you know, the, the shank evangelical train. Now, a lot of people have picked it up and I'm, and I'm happy to see that. I actually, you know, I, I, mean, I, I, uh, I, I, I butchered a wild pig the other day for, uh, for a guy who brought it down and, uh, you know, I, I text him because I did one before him too. And I text him. I was like, Hey man, do you want the shanks? And he's like, what? I was like, do you want the shanks? He's like, no. I was like, well, can I have them then? Cause we were doing a split on the meat. And he's like, yeah, take them all. And so the next one he brought me, I didn't even text him. And I took it and I was like, here's these shanks. He's like, what? I was like, take these, like put them in the crock pot, braise them, like do something with them. You're going to, you're never going to give them away again. Like they're phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Well, especially with a hog. I mean, yeah. The world's greatest ham hock. Oh yes. Right. I, I smoked the crap out of my, uh, like javelina or, or hog shanks. Mm -hmm. And because I eat a lot of beans and I eat a lot of greens and there's nothing better than to throw a, a smoked hawk or, or shank or whatever into a pot of water, let it sit for an hour and then throw the other stuff in. Oh yeah. And you strip all the meat off and oh man. That's the way we, that's the way we eat beans, uh, like pinto beans growing up. Mm -hmm. It's more, and it's more of like a soup. Um, than a, than a sort of like a paste. You think of like red beans or some of the other where people just eat the beans themselves, but oh man. Smoked, yeah, I mean, it's, you're talking about chato beans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Smoked ham and beans. Oh, that's like, that's the best ever. Right? <laughs> Comfort. Yeah, meal. I mean, I think, I think the, uh, the last piece would be to, 
either go to my website or yours or or somebody you trust um, when it comes to the the wobbly bits because that's where people get the most squinchy um, hearts and livers and tongues and kidneys and gizzards and things mm-hmm. like that. Well, I my stock and trade has been to provide you, the listener, reader, or whoever, with not only recipes that use the cuts, but make you want to eat them first. Because they, they, they tend to be a bit more limited than, say, a hind leg. But the things that they're very good at, they're very good at. Mm-hmm. To the point where, I mean, I don't, I mean, I've eaten tongue six ways to Sunday. I don't know if there's any better use for a tongue than tacos a lengua. Oh, and yes. <laughs> yes. I, I just, it's just, it's, you know, I'm especially if you're a hunter, right? Like how many tongues are you going to get? Right. So <laughs> I mean, they only have one on a deer and like a, a deer tongue is like a single serving for tacos de lengua. So like guys in the South who shoot like 12 deer, they're in business or, you know, people who want elk or moose or something like that. Um, but yeah, pigs even. Pigs have a really good sized tongue as well. But mm-hmm. that's a case where if I served anybody that taco and didn't tell them what it was, they'd be, this is amazing. Then you tell them it's tongue and they, they get all squinchy. You know, and so the, I for one, and, and there's a lot, a few of us doing this out there, are trying to not make, so the, the last thing you want to do is say, you need to eat your fifth quarter, you know, your, your giblets or whatever. I don't want to make you feel bad. I don't want to moralize. I don't want to say, you know, you disrespect the animal by not eating whatever. Because even if I were to think that way, like that's not Those helpful. were some great tips by Hank Sean. Next up, we have uh, a great conversation on cooking bear. This was Randy King, Colin, Sean West, and myself in episode 17. So going way back. And uh, we just talk about some safety in cooking bear and some research in cooking bear and just uh, general practice for cooking bear meat. So anyway, enjoy. I guess so one thing I want to point out that's really, I think, important to somebody, say they were listening to this podcast, they're like, you know what, I've never hunted bear before, I'm going to go hunt bear. They get a bear. I've never cooked bear before. Um, you know, not that much research. I would hope that most people are gonna find a way to do a little more research, and I I have faith in society that they would. But if you're going to take a piece of bear meat and just throw it in a skillet and eat it, there's some very important things that you need to think about and learn before you do so. And uh, one thing I want to point out that probably the majority of cases in modern times of trichinosis have come from the consumption of bear meat. It's the magic T word. Yeah. Everyone, that, that's what you got to be worried about. And that's what scares <laughs> it. That's what scares everybody. Everyone I've talked to, you know, they've, yeah, they, exactly. They, <laughs> they, you know, I, I I'm going to not date myself. I don't think we're all probably roughly the same generation, but like my dad, my uncles, my hunting mentors, like they're of the generation when domestic pork was a trichinosis risk. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I, it's been a tough sell on them, you know, to, to get them to buy in on medium cooked pork, let alone, you know, I, I made, I made a bear sandwich and we might talk about it later. Like I made a bear steak sandwich and it was like medium rare and, and medium, it was medium more or less. I didn't say medium rare. It was medium. 
And, uh, and my old man was like, you're going to, you're going to die. Like my dad was like, that's, you're going to get, like, I showed him a picture. He said, you're going to get really sick. It was two and a half months ago. I'm fine. Like, uh, uh, so what, what steps did you take to make sure? Because uh, that's, that's exactly where I was kind of going with this was like, that was adorable. Colin. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, no, what, so yeah, steps to, steps to make it uh, safe. I used it uh, sous vide. I use a sous vide and, mm. uh, you know, I went to the, I went with the master. I don't like, he's kind of like the guru of all things wild game. Like I went straight to the Google machine and found what Hank Shaw, the man had to say, <laughs> I don't know if he listens to this, Hank, we love you. Uh, no, but anyways, like the, you know, I wrote this in a, in a blog post about this sandwich, right. On getting hunting, which was like, trust the process and trust science when it comes to food safety and trichinosis gets killed at like between 130 and 140, 135, 140 degrees. I think was what I read in multiple places. And, and also time is a factor. The longer you can hold temperature, the, the, not the more it will die, it will just die. But the more sure, the more sure you can be that <laughs> the more dead that, it is, the more dead it is, the more <laughs> sure you can be. Kill Basically what again. I did, you know, uh, and again, we're not, we're not experts. Like there's a professional chef, on this on this podcast and we're not that we just love to cook but you know we did the research we have a sous vide we sealed it up we held it at 145 to be safe for two hours which was well in excess by like 10 degrees the temperature and by like 90 minutes or an hour the time and it came out blushing pink in the middle we give it a hard sear on the grill and it was honestly the most tender delicious it's off this sweet bear the young bear we got and like I said, that was three months ago almost, and I got no parasites in my muscles. My family, my kids tried it. Like, you know, it's if you if you trust science and you trust the process, you know, for food safety, you can't go wrong. And if you don't trust science and you don't trust the process, and you might get sick. Like, food safety is, is is just it's just biology, in our opinion. But that's what we did, right? Like, you know, and that's the one. All my friends like that's too rare, and my like I said, my dad's like that's too rare, and you know, it was fine. Just, just medium, no panic, guys. Mm-hmm. Be cool. <laughs> I think probably the key to that is the, like you said, the the. I don't know. Even to me, that temperature seems a little low, but um, <laughs> it's cool. I think the amount of time probably. <laughs> I... <laughs> I mean... No, no, no. It's just. Uh... I don't there's have a, a lot of experience uh, cooking bear. There's there's like an instant kill temperature, right? And there's like a I'm not a cook by any means. Sustained, like a sustained kill. Right. There's like a an hour at this temperature will kill it, but then there's also like an instant kill. So I think like was it like I think it's like 165 or something. That's what I read about. I think 165 line. will kill anything. Like I think if you right. cook to 165, yeah. like I, so, I, I defer to Randy on that because he's the professional. But like I think that's yeah, kill anything. So it's it's 137 is trichinosis spirella um, for for killing it, but then it's every single fiber has to get to 137. So that's the problem and the benefit of sous vide, right? So your 137 is you know solid medium, right? Medium, I would consider it almost medium well like a, on a pork or on a beef, right? Um, so so to get there, you usually have that band that's not there. So that's why, to your point, if you get everything above that, and that's what the two hours is for, that's why 
um, then then you should be fine. But but trying to sear something and cook it to one forty yeah. right at, at whatever random spot that you throw your probe into, um, or what you know what I'm saying. If you hit it in a, hit it in a slightly thinner spot and there's meat that didn't get to that temperature, that's when you start running the risk. And that's why a lot of people just say to hell with it, go to well done. Yep. Right. Um, and that 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 is the 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 good and the bad with there, right, is that it's you're supposed to go to well done just simply because it's it's uh, of that trichinosis fear. But if you do the process and the science, you can get there. So, um, but same with sausages. I think sausages are probably my go-to because I usually want them well done almost anyway, right? You don't want a medium rare sausage. That's just kind of gross. Same with burgers. Um, so, yeah, and, and I would argue, Randy, same with burgers, right? Like if you're doing yeah. ground bear. If you're doing ground bear, no one wants their burger, especially if they've cut it with anything else. Like you don't want that. Mm-hmm. Like you, that's going to be well done, and, and that's fair. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we we had a bunch of ground, and we didn't do burgers because it was Canada and it was March, and I couldn't grill because it was snowing. Uh, <laughs> but we we did a, like a I did like a Thai kind of hot pot stir fry with the ground bear and put it over noodles, mm. and, and you just keep that. Like you said, that that when it's you can go as hot as you want then with the ground, right? And and, mm-hmm. and and you're fine. Nothing's pink. Everything's brown. Everything's delicious in that respect because you're browning it in oil. And, and yeah, that I, I don't want to minimize. I don't want to sound like reckless. Like, I don't want to minimize the risk when I say like, hey, I just went to this temperature and did the science and everything. But I would, so many people get turned off by wild game. Another one, not to make, not to take a hard left again, but like, I'm a goose advocate. I got a goose tattoo of my arm the size of my arm like i love canada goose and everyone says canada goose is a trash bird just like i hear constantly bear is a trash meat and if you cook canada goose correctly if you treat it well it's amazing and bear is the same way so many people are scared off of hunting bears or eating bears or processing bears because they're afraid to get sick but if you follow the guidelines and you you do some research and you do some homework it's 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 immensely worth it like i said it's my it's my favorite meat to eat Well, that was a great conversation on cooking bear. So next up, we have our last segment for this show. And that's uh, from episode 215, where we talk about organ meats. Uh, And we chatted with Emily and Ryan from The Way We Hunt on this episode, as well as Colin. And uh, get into talking about, uh, as Hank Shaw says, the wobbly bits. As hunting season sort of like beginning to get into full swing and we've all touched on this of like what you're doing and what you're thinking about to do with, with your, your meat or your game. Um, a lot of people are skipping over some really valuable parts of the animal. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. I think in, in a lot of traditional cultures, traditional hunting cultures and indigenous cultures, you're looking at, you know, the heart, the liver, call fat, uh, the tongue, things like that, those inner organs are being utilized much more and towards the first part of like the cycle of eating meat. And uh, there's some reasoning behind that of like things going bad first, but also the nutrients and stuff that are present. And if you think very back to sort of like the very primalness of hunting, and it's like if you're you and your group of friends or family members coming out from your village and you're hunting, you know, 
it's not necessarily saying you're going to go walk out the next hill over and, and harvest something. Uh, you may be traveling further away to get where game is migrated to. You may be, you know, chasing game and not successfully getting it. And there may be periods where you you and your family and your village are going through um, bouts of starvation at the, the worst part of it. But um, even just like a lack of quality food. So then once you're harvesting an animal, like biologically, how are we going to replenish our bodies? How are we going to put those vitamins and minerals back in? And it's been seen throughout history that those things, the heart, the liver, uh, you know, the different fats, the, uh, there's so many different organs that have been utilized over time to replenish that, to put vitamins and minerals back into the body. And that's why I think you see them. One of the first things, uh, taken and eaten. So my experience sort of looking in it is I've cooked all of them and I try to save all of them. It's not always an ideal situation where I can do it. Um, but as a kid, I hated liver. Um, and you think of like that textbook, like liver and onions recipe where it's like bootstrap leather because it's probably overcooked. I'm sure someone soaked it in milk and then it's just thrown in there and stirred in the pan with a, uh, with um, some gravy and onions and whatnot. And that, that was probably one of my grandfather's like favorite meals, not necessarily mine. <laughs> so um, I can tell you, we're not going to talk about that recipe tonight <laughs> outside of that. But we've got some other, actually, we don't have any liver recipes on here. Well, that's going to have to change. Liver like pate, didn't you? Uh, we had a pate. We never put it out. I've talked about it before. Uh, um, Meat Eater has a really good, I think it's turkey. I want to say turkey liver pate. Because uh, we had talked about a pate because I had liver because Ryan also hates liver. So <laughs> I wanted to do something different and you had suggested a pate. Yeah. Pates are a great way because you're you're essentially like cooking the liver already and then you're running it through like a processor and mixing it with a bunch of delicious things to kind of make like a spread. Um, you put on bread, you put on crackers. That's why like, I didn't do it because there was a lot of work. <laughs> That's fair. This is liver, liver and onions for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got liver and onions. <laughs> so... Um, well, I guess since we're on liver, we'll, we'll go with that first. So some, I guess let's look at what's, uh, what's sort of your guys' experience with liver. And it doesn't have to be specifically wild game. You can just kind of talk about anything like where does it fall? Have you had it? Do you enjoy I love it? it? Yeah. I had it, it. And this will kind of go. And I, I was, I got to go on a hunt uh, a couple years ago to, um, to New Zealand and we were up on the side of the mountain and I forgot what, I, I can't think of what animal that we had. There was four or five of us and someone had, had harvested something. I don't, I think it was a fallow, I think. Um, but the point is we had a native New Zealander there and it, we were, I, I said something about having to hike up this mountain cause the mountains, they're just, you know, they're huge. It's the Alps, right? So they're, they're fairly steep and it goes, but it reminded me when you were talking a while ago about, you know, taking the, the organ meat and stuff. And I was talking to him and I was like, you know, how, how did you grow up hunting? we got, you know, going to this and he goes, well, my job as a kid was to cut out 
um, the lungs, the heart, the liver, the tongue, everything. When my father, I mean, like they'd go out in like a, a tribal type of environment and go hunt. And that was his job as a kid, right? So his, his little portion of the pie was the, was the hardest that. And I was like, well, how come? And he's like, I said, you know, is, is that something that you like? He goes, no, but you know, back then they were using such prim primitive weapons. That might be the only stag or fallow or whatever they got for months just because it was so hard of environment to hunt. So they, that's why they took absolutely everything. It was like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take every bit. I mean, they're taking the first, you know, just like trappers and everything. Right. Mm -hmm. So to them, that's why they're like, these are calories that's going to feed, you know, our, tr our tribe, our village or whatever for the next, who knows, two weeks. So that's why we do it. And they just, they said, you know, over time, they just learned how to cook it at first back in the day. He said it was horrible. You know, we, I hated eating all this stuff. You know, it's like a half raw heart laying there. He said, but that was the only food that we had. So we, they've learned over time and he's a chef now. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So that, and that was kind of the transition. Um, I am not a, a big liver fan. I just never have been. Um, and it's something that I should probably need. I am going to spend more time on doing because I know there's a way that I'm, I enjoy it. I just haven't found it yet. And I know once I find it, I'm going to be like, everybody's eating liver, you know, because <laughs> I cooked, cooked it for you with love and you'll love it. Yep. Forever. <laughs> the secret ingredient. <laughs> yeah. uh, That's a lie. Um, but yeah, so I, I have very limited experience. I've tried it. Um, I don't say I hate it. It's just, it's not my go-to. Um, but I'd like I said, I just haven't found that one, that one recipe that, that just is over the top for me, but she loves it. Yeah. I like it. I think it's good. So what, what, why do you like it? What do you find appealing about it? Uh, I like it that, I don't know that I mind the texture as much, but I just like kind of the dense flavor. I I do like the gamey type flavors, minus the ducks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Colin. But uh, no problem. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know if I just like because I like kidney too, and I so I like the kidney flavor and I like the liver flavor, and to me, they're kind of the same obviously the kidney is a little bit more chewy than than um the liver is but i don't know i've just always liked it i don't we didn't grow up super you know rich or poor but you know if you grandma served liver you ate liver and so you just kind of learned to like it or you did without yep that's fair um I think as as I've grown up, I, I've definitely grown to appreciate it. Um, so that's something that's changed for me over time. And, you know, naturally, too, I think people, there's a, a common conception that, that your taste buds change over time. So I'll, I'll fall in line with that. Colin, liver, yay, nay, middle of the road. Uh, I, can't, I can't say I've ever had liver, actually. I, um, I think I've had liver pate, we were talking about. I think my dad made it for Christmas one time. And I think the family is pretty much 50-50 split on whether they liked it or not. Have you had um, a... That was years ago. Fall gras? No, I don't think so. Yeah, it's like a yeah. goose, goose liver. Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember you know, like picking it up in my hand a couple of weeks ago when we um, processed those geese and thinking like, oh, yeah, this, these are the organs, these are the liver and everything like that. It's kind of cool, but uh, yeah, I just I don't know. I don't know what to do with them. I don't. I've never really like explored into like the the liver realm, so it'd definitely be something I'd need to to look into. 
and at All least right. experiment with, you know. I, I, I guess my mind isn't really made up about it because I don't have anything to base that off of. Okay, that's that's a fair answer. Yeah. Um, so some some important points when you're out in the field and you're deciding to take your liver home. Uh, off, obviously, your first thing is what are you going to do with it? Um, and I say that not in the cooking sense, but in like the storage sense. Uh, so there's a lot of factors that come into play with it. You know, how far are you from a place where you're going to be able to cool your meat, hang your meat, do whatever. Is it, uh, are you like a day away? Are you days away? Are you, you know, uh, an hour away? Uh, that's something to think about. I would say if you're like days away and you're looking for like a camp meal at some point, the heart and liver are probably at the top of that list. But uh, if you're able to freeze it or get it cooled down pretty quickly, then I would say, you know, Ziploc bag or uh, like a game bag or something and get it frozen or on ice uh, fairly quickly. So with livers, a liver is essentially a filter, right? So it filters blood, uh, filters impurities out of the blood. So um, the younger the animal, generally the better um the liver quality is going to be and i mean that if you think about it it makes sense um yeah think about our livers right now (laughs) i don't my poor liver probably hates me (laughs) when the zombie when the zombie apocalypse comes i will be the last liver the zombies will want (laughs) jokes on you fellas (laughs) yeah so uh that's something to think about so if you if you're harvesting an older animal the flavor may not be on par so i'd say don't stray away from it just take it into consideration especially if trying livers something new to you um another important thing to look at is be sure to inspect the liver and that's like at the side of where you're you're taking it. You don't want to like take the liver, get it home, and be like, uh, I don't know about this because that's just an extra mess you have to deal with. So think about inspecting the liver. So uh, black spots or odd colorations. It should be kind of a general color all the way around. Um, it should be matching uniform. If you see odd abnormalities, it's good indication that that animal was probably not in the greatest of liver health and you probably therefore don't want to eat it. Um, just something to consider. Um, the other big thing is a lot of people will soak it in, uh, in milk or salt water. So if you're soaking in salt water, it's a brine. If you're putting in milk, it's, I guess it's a debate of it, whether it's a marinade or not. I guess since technically milk has acid in it, it would qualify as a marinade, but I'm not sure that you're soaking it for the same reason. Uh, a would lot of milk just pull more of the blood out though. So yes, I'm glad you brought that up. That is, um, that is the common theory with it. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some scientific, backing to it but not a lot um flavor wise the thought process being that milk has calcium in it and Mm -hmm. calcium binds with iron and being that blood is heavy in iron and that's where it generally resides that it will uh pull that out of the liver and then um you're actually kind of basically diluting the the flavor of it with the milk so I, I don't know. Um, 
I've never done like a side by side comparison in it. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of conversations and and read a lot of material that people are both on the fence. Like, yeah, it works. No, it doesn't work. Um, so there's that. I would say, I don't know. I'm generally against soaking things in milk, and it's a lot of it is because I myself, uh, one, we don't we don't drink a lot of milk, so it's not something we have on hand. And then two, it's like you, you got to get. Not often is it going to be something you're going to pair with it. Like think about mixing milk and red meat together, like in general, like if you just went to the store and you got a steak, um, I'm not sure that that's like a, a common thing I put in my mind. If I'm making like a cream based something, then yeah, maybe cause it would complement it. But like down the road, it affecting flavor. I don't know. It, it's more the intention behind it. Yeah. When I first started hunting, that was like the thing that you did is you like would soak it, mm-hmm. thaw it out, and then you would soak it in milk uh, before you do anything else. And then it kind of changed to you soak it in ice water or, you know, ice with salt in it and stuff, which we do more now than yeah, we, we brine more than anything that we do. Right. I mean, more yeah. than anything. I got away from the milk, but there's occasionally like, you know, you think about dove hunting, you think about soaking the dove in buttermilk before you do dove poppers. That's how you make dove poppers. You soak them in buttermilk. I think and I see, you, I think I see a correlation milk. here. That's dove poppers and milk. That's why I didn't like poppers. There's milk upon it. So That's it. <laughs> Secrets out. <laughs> um, no, just just some interest, and and I would I'd be curious if anybody has done a sort of side by side comparison, and like and where it lies. So if if you're out there in listener land and and you do have experience in this, let us know because I'm I'm curious to know. Um, maybe it's something I'll mark down on my list to to try this year, and that way we can get a a biased review. <laughs> so great chat there with Emily and Ryan on organ meats. And I actually went on to write a research article on soaking liver in various substances to help take down some of that irony taste. Uh, Look for that in the show notes. And this actually concludes the top 10 favorite movements of the Wild Fishing Game podcast. So glad that you guys have stuck with us through this last year and really excited to see what 2021 is going to bring. And uh, like always, hit that five-star button. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us what we're doing right. Thanks, and have a good night.